Hello, everybody. This is Keith Cosro. And before we begin the Wes Welker episode of the NFL Films podcast, a quick note. First of all, I am joined right now by a very special guest, the producer of our podcast, who's been with us throughout our first season, Rich Owens. And Rich, today is a very interesting episode. Why? Because this was our inaugural episode, the first one we ever recorded. The pilot, as it were. Indeed. The pilot episode of a show usually isn't very good. It's when you're really trying to figure some things out. It's the first time. It's the maiden voyage. And yet, like in TV, it's written and it's thought out and it's mapped out. And it's the show they made to sell the series and the concept. And to some degree, we did that here. And, and we had some thoughts and some ideas about what this podcast would be. But we really had no idea what we were doing. We went in with a bit of a plan, Paul and me and you uh, on the other side of the glass. And we had our guests who are the producers of uh, the Wes Welker Football Life episode. And eventually we had Greg Cosell and... We had some clips from the Welker episode, some some clips that didn't make the episode that are really, really terrific and that you're going to want to hear. And we had a great flashback to an old Steve Sable interview with Jerry Rice. A classic bite. And that was all cool, and that was what we went in with. And the rest of it, as you will hear today, is us fumbling around trying to figure out what the heck we're trying to do here. So I think for that reason alone, it's an interesting listen to go back and hear, all right, here are these guys trying this for the very first time. Not that we're that good at it now, but we really weren't very good at it then. We were just trying to put it all together. And I think this uh, you know, inaugural episode uh, is an interesting look at the vision we had right from the beginning. How so? Um, I think that you know, our original vision uh, was to give everyone a further peek into the films we make. And so we decided to uh, give everybody a look at some of these behind-the-scenes clips from the film. And I think it's a really interesting look at uh, sort of the minds of all the great producers we have in this building. And I think that's really interesting for people to see how we put these things together. All right, then. So this is... Uh the Wes Welker, and one of the funny things is here, it didn't even occur to us at the time that we should try to get Wes Welker to come on the show. We didn't even think of that at that point. It was only after we played this for some people and they said, why don't you try to get the actual guy to come on? You know, you might be able to do that. And we said, you know what? That's a good idea. So on, in the ensuing episodes, uh, we were able to do that for almost all the subjects of A Football Life or Timeline, who we featured. But in this particular episode, we went heavy on the clips, heavy on the conversation, with the producers and directors of this uh, film. And uh, we had a good time, but we had no idea what we were doing. So give it a listen. Wes Welker, Football Life, the NFL Films Podcast, the pilot episode. But before you do, a quick programming note. You can watch Wes Welker, Football Life, on demand, if you have NFL Network, and on gamepass.nfl.com, anytime you want. Is that correct, Rich? That is correct. All right. Enjoy, everybody. Cue it. Let's do it. If that song doesn't put a smile on your face, what does? And if you're listening to it, you have stumbled upon the first ever NFL Films podcast. My name is Keith Cosro, and I am with... Paul Camerata. Hello. Sitting on uh, Keith's left here in our studio. I'll paint a picture for you since this is our first foray into an audio-only format. No cameras here uh, at the premiere uh, recording of the podcast. And who's across from you, Paul? Senior producer Nick Mascolo is directly across from me at 12 o'clock. And at about 1 one o'clock is Chip Swain, another senior producer. And they are joining us here today Uh both to celebrate this momentous occasion of the uh, first podcast, but specifically because they are the producers of a show called Wes Welker, A Football Life, uh, which will be our main topic of conversation. 
how we got here. So this is, like we said, the very first NFL Films podcast. Um, and we think this is something that our late great boss, Steve Sable, would have really loved. And that's why we started the show with Steve's March, a Sam Spence NFL Films classic. Steve used to wander the halls. He didn't wander them. He patrolled the halls and had conversations with all of his dozens of producers any hour of any day of the week, talking football, movies, our football movies, anything else that crossed his mind. And after many conversations, he said, why, why isn't this a show? Why can't we have a show called The Producer's Lounge? And we, even one year, we even shot a, a pilot of The Producer's Lounge which looked more like a local access show than an actual television show. So that never got off the ground. But as usual, Steve was uh, well ahead of his time, and eventually podcasts arrived. So what are we looking to do with the podcast, Paul? Well, today, specifically, we're going to talk about Wes Welker. Uh, Nick and Chip spent the better part of the last six months or so uh, diving into his story, traveling the country, doing interviews with Wes, with all the important people in his life, uh, both on the football field and away from the football field, and then crafting that footage, researching, I shouldn't leave that out, researching the footage of his career that exists here in our library, uh, and taking all that and telling his story in a 44-minute package uh, for the series of Football Life, the documentary biography series, which airs in the NFL Network. So Chip and Nick are going to kind of tell us about how that all started, how it unfolded, um, how it evolved, which it always does, um, like any game plan, I guess. You start out with, with what you think you're going to do and you make changes. So uh, it's kind of a process uh, and we hope they're going to shed some light on. We are in our seventh season of A Football Life, our documentary series, our bio, bio, biographical documentary series on NFL Network, and we will have our 100th episode this season. Some episodes are no-brainers. We started this season with Dan Marino, Emmett Smith, John Madden, A-listers by any stretch, Hall of Famers. Some episodes of A Football Life are unexpected, and I think we would all agree that Wes Welker falls into that category. Nick, how did this episode of A Football Life come to be? So I had always had Wes Welker in the back of my mind. Um, we do a, a feature called Unlikely Champions for one of our other series, NFL Films Presents. And the season he was with the Broncos and went to the Super Bowl, I thought since he had lost two Super Bowls with the Patriots, he might be an interesting character to put into that grouping of unlikely guys because he's winning with the new team and he moved on and so he's in the back of my mind. Then we're working uh, last year on the Rams as they moved from St. Louis to Los Angeles. We had them on another one of our shows, Hard Knocks. You know, we have multiple cameras there and one of the cameras is shooting cutaways of the players um, sitting around and all of a sudden I see Wes Welker and I kind of felt bad for him. I'm like, oh, he's with the Rams. Like, oh, the Rams, you know, they were just, uh, and, I, and it was just, I just felt bad for the guy and then I'm like, oh, wait, that's right, he never won a Super Bowl and I'm like, oh, why not? and then I started having like, the idea, like, oh, you know what, maybe there's a bigger story to him that I don't know outside of just these couple things I know. I mean, he was a great player. I mean, we all probably had him on fantasy teams at some point, um, you know, when he was with the Patriots or wanted him, certainly. So I kind of just, you know, tucked it aside because you can't just go off on a tangent at that moment but say, hey, I'm going to look into this guy. So you watch a lot of footage researching a guy when you do a film like this, and then there's the moment where you actually this shoot gets set up and you get to go actually do an interview or a shoot with him. So I don't know who, which of you met him first, so you can kind of jump in here. But when you'd seen Welker's footage and you walked into the room with him face-to-face the first time, and you guys have interviewed your share of pro football players, pro athletes of all, all different sports, what was your sort of eyeball test reaction to, oh, that's Wes Welker? What, what do you remember about that? It's crazy. I mean, I, I thought that knowing what his height was, it matches my height and the fact that he plays over the middle in the toughest landscape in the NFL, getting hit by, you know, these guys who we all, you know, you know we, we interview all shapes and forms of football players, but they're generally all bigger than us. Um, and uh, to see that he was my size and, you know, I think we took a, Chip and I took a picture with him when it was all done and he's right there with us. It's like you could, you know, put a two by four across of us and it would it'd be pretty, pretty level. We interview players of all shapes and sizes, but also of all different personalities. 
some are willing subjects for something like this. Some are uh, more reluctant. What kind of a subject did you find Wes to be? He was, uh, we had a phone conversation with him the first time uh, to kind of throw out all the ideas we had, right? Yeah. And um, he was on board with everything, you know. He uh, he thought it all sounded good. He would, he wasn't, you know, saying, oh, well, I don't know. No, no, no. He was, yep, we can do that. We can do that. We can do that. Um, and... You know, that was kind of, the, we had a blueprint of what we were going to do. He was going to go home to Oklahoma City uh, to have a football camp, which we shot, which didn't make it into the show because, you know, just certain things run out of time. Yeah, out of time. Um, but it worked because he came home to where his family was uh, and where he went to high school because the, the, his high school coach, Rod Warner, was going to be a, a big part of this because he was the individual who kind of went to bat for Wes when colleges uh, weren't. Uh, you know, give him any offers. He sent out a fax to everybody to say, "Hey, the 1999 Oklahoma State Player of the Year isn't isn't signed with anybody yet. He's still available." And um, that was right before uh, signing day, uh, and he got lucky. Signing day came and went, and he got lucky a couple of days later. Let's hear that bit from the show. In February of 2000, Rod Warner reached out to 105 colleges on behalf of his star player Wes Welker. You all took such good care of me, man. He received one response. I got a call from a former guy that I coached with, Tommy McVeigh. He was the director of football at Texas Tech, and he said, well, "Hey, Rod, what? Who's this kid?" Rod sent me the film on this little kid from Oklahoma City. He was doing everything at Heritage Hall, everything. And throughout that film, you're going, well, if only he was bigger. Oh, wow, that's a great play. If he is just a little faster. Oh, wow. How did he get out of that? How did he do that? How did he manage that? I really don't think that he ever saw any shortcomings. He, he just sort of a, assumed he didn't have any. And I was begging him. I said, Mike, go ahead and sign him. We, we have nothing to lose. Go ahead and sign him. We get there, and uh, Coach Leach is on the phone with Tommy McBay, and, and Coach Leach is saying, yeah, yeah, okay. And then he hangs up. He's like, all right, we're going to offer you. Um, I'm like, you had this conversation, like, right here in front of me? Like, it was just, like, an awkward type of thing. But So we're going to offer you, but, uh, you know, we're, we're going to need to know, um, you know, here in the next few days or something. I was like, like I'm, I, I'll take it. I'm, I'm good. I don't know if you've heard, but I don't have any other offers. One thing, and we heard from some very interesting voices there. First of all, Josh Charles, the narrator of Football Life. You hear his dulcet tones. And we hear from Mike Leach, the great coach of now Washington State, who was a Texas Tech coach at the time, inventor of the air raid offense that Wes went on to star in. But the one thing I wanted to ask is, and you hear it a little bit at the end here. Wes is a surprisingly good storyteller and almost an, an enthusiastic one. Like what comes across in the film is that he wants to tell his story. Did you you get that impression when, when, when you worked with him and when you edited the film? Yeah, I mean, 100%. He, he loved talking about especially the early parts of his you know, sort of development in high school and college and those stories. The, the, he's got a fondness for that time in his career and his life. And, um, you know, he, he was, he was a willing participant and we talked about earlier, but he was very candid about everything, about how he left the Patriots, about everything that he went through, all the struggles with concussions, all of it. He was very candid, which, you know, sometimes these guys keep things close to the vest. I mean, you guys know, and, um, you know, that's the, it was, it made for, it makes for a good show. How does that change your job as a filmmaker, Chip, when the guy is, when you, when you have that epiphany moment in your head where you're like, oh, he's going to, he's going to be open, he's going to talk, as opposed to a guy who's guarded, because you've probably had both experiences. How does it change the process for you when you realize he's going to be into it and he's going to open up with us here? Well, I mean, I think mostly it just allows you to cover anything you want, really. And, and he's going to, he's going to tell you anything. And, the flip side is, if he's going to be candid about something, then you maybe have to try and worry about the other side of the coin. Like, if he's going to be candid about how his time ended with the Patriots, we need to make sure that both sides are represented. So we have to be careful about that. There's some good stuff in the show, and there's some good stuff that didn't make the show. I want to start with one that didn't make the show, and this is the first time he met 
Tom Brady. When I when I went up there to New England and signed, um, he was working out in the weight room. He's on the elliptical, so uh, they took me in there to meet him. And uh, I think our first conversation was, uh, you know, he's happy to have me there, all that stuff and everything. And uh, I said, yeah, we're just, you know, have one thing left on this uh, on this contract, you know. And he's like, oh yeah, what's what's that? And I was like, uh, Giselle's friends, you know. And he kind of sat there. He's like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm like. It's probably like the corniest thing. He's probably heard that like 20,000 times from all of his buddies and stuff. And of course, you know, that's my first conversation with him. Now, the, uh, the story Wes told us about the first time you met, he, uh, he mentioned something about an extra contract negotiation that he was trying to get from you. You remember that story? What was he trying to get? Help me trying, out. He was trying to get you to introduce him to some of your, uh, your wife's friends. <laughs> yeah, I think it worked out pretty well for him. Um, he actually met his wife at the Kentucky Derby, um, Anna. So I kind of helped put together that trip. So maybe I'm somewhat responsible for them hooking up. He would never have been at this out party to, yeah, if it weren't for Tom. never the party because of him. Yeah, flew so, out on his plane. So that's, uh, that's probably where the, the role kind of comes in. Yes, yeah, so I guess we should yeah. thank Tom. Yeah. <laughs> you did. Now, Chip, you did the Brady interview in this show and the Peyton Manning interview in this show, correct? That's correct, yes. Was that a coin flip? How does that work when, when, you, when you have a show where you're going to interview Brady and Manning? I don't know how many people at NFL Films have the distinction of saying they interviewed both. Is that right? Zero? As far as I know. As far, no, wow, the first. So went out and did Peyton uh, for this show and for a couple of other shows, which was, he was great. I got like 45 minutes with him, which was amazing. And then uh, we pursued and pursued and pursued Tom Brady. And then finally about two or three weeks before we needed to be done with the show, he agreed to do the interview. And we got about 10 minutes with him, and we made a count. I think we used nine minutes and 37 <laughs> seconds. Of, I think anything that didn't make the show will appear on, on this on podcast. This podcast. Yeah. And it yeah. should, yes. Yeah. But it, which, raises a good, which raises a good point. You know, you when we make a football life or any network, an, an NFL network hour is 43 minutes and 40 seconds, a number we all have drilled into, into our skulls. What... <laughs> You know, and it's hard. There's a lot of good stuff, and we're going to play a lot of it. And, and, and I keep raising that this made the show, this didn't make the show. And we'll stop saying that, but, but I think it's worth bringing up, you know, stuff, great stuff doesn't make it into these shows. Yeah. I mean, I mean, how many, I think we all probably have done, um, you know, main um, subject interviews that have been in the, in the realm of two to four hours probably when we interview right. these guys. So you have a lot of it, and that's just the the main subject. Then you then you have all these other people who have been part of their lives, you know, parents, players, high school coaches, college coaches, teammates. Um, it's and a lot of people to mix in. And Keith, you can talk to this, I think, as one of the showrunners of Football Life. What is the point where a guy is sort of good enough to be a Football Life, right? What what level of accomplishment helps you guys decide? At least on paper, we think there's a, there's enough story here because I think that gets to the heart of. Once you pass that threshold, there are so many details. Yeah, inevitably, some of them aren't going to make the show. So how does it get to the point where you say, you know what, there's enough that's happened here now that we think we can tell an interesting hour about this guy? Well, that's you know kind of where we started is that Welker's not an obvious choice. I, I think one this kind of goes back to one thing Steve Sable used to say to us is, I don't want to do a piece on a guy till there's a complete story arc, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I think... When we talk about unlikely subjects and, and producers come and, and pitch a show idea for football life, one thing that Chris Barlow and I like to say to a producer is, what's happening uh, in the fourth block? There's six blocks of this show, you know, five commercial breaks. What's going on in block four? Is there something interesting? Can that block stand on its own or are we, are we thin at that point? And you love a story where a guy – was in three or four different places, and there were different phases to his career. Those always work well. You love a you know, you love archetypal stories, which this clearly is. This is the quintessential underdog story all through his career. No one ever thought this guy would make it in the NFL. So we we thought, you know, and Chris Barlow and I, the other showrunner for Football Life, talked to to Pat Kelleher, our executive producer, and Ross Kedover, our senior executive in NFL Films, and we we weigh all these things. There are certain guys that are no-brainers, and then there are ones like this. And ultimately, we'll say to someone like Nick, who who comes with this idea, all right, give us give us a full outline. 
Give us the full six-block outline so that we know what's going on in the fourth block. And that'll change. But I think this one exceeded all of our expectations because Wes turned out to be such a willing participant. And there are great things about him that you forget, like the foot fetish incident. The foot fetish incident is one of the great (laughs) underrated press conference moments in NFL history. Welker's physical toughness was never in doubt. His mental toughness was about to be tested. A torn ACL in the final week of the season cost Welker the 2009 playoffs. In 2010, his mouth nearly cost him another postseason. It's a playoff atmosphere, and uh, you can't just stick your toe in the water. You know, you got to jump right in. And In the days leading up to New England's playoff game against the Jets, a story broke about Rex Ryan's alleged foot fetish. It was all the prankster needed. Well, I think we've had some younger players really step up this year. and, and Wes uh, had called Dad and told him that he was going to do it, and so I, I was like, no, he will not, surely not. Everybody's putting their best foot forward and, and going out there. I remember that, but I don't. I am not going down that road. I'm not going down that road. Really just us going out there and, and being good little foot soldiers and making sure. I guess sure I just kind of got tired of, like, him being the guy that talked trash the whole time. You know, especially, you know, you got your foot up in the air. And, and, and so I was like, Okay, all right, fine, I'm going to do it. You definitely have to be on your toes. and, and make Wes sure always really brought a lot of life to things, and he had a great personality, always keeping things light for everybody. He's, a, he's another guy who has great feet and, and can really move around and, and do some great things out there. You know, who cares if it got him in trouble? No, one's, no one really gives a about that. Kudos for getting that out of Brady in, in, in the Tom Brady interview. I don't know that we've ever heard Brady curse in one of our interviews go. before. There you go. Yeah, yeah he was. Um, he enjoyed that the smirk on his face. What did there. he tell people... you when, when he walked in? Oh uh, well, I mean, he said, uh, "This is great. I get to talk about one of my favorite people." So that uh, was Brady when he walked into when he walked into the, into the interview. Yeah, tongue in cheek. He was excited. Or serious. No, he was dead serious. He, he was really excited to do this interview and talk about Wes. I remember in the interview when, when uh, I was like, you know, I told Wes, I'm like, look, I know Tom's a busy guy. You got to have to help us get him. You know, so I told you, know, like we were in the middle of talking about something and maybe the first meeting or whatever. And I'm like, you know, just don't forget, like, you know, text him, do whatever, help us out. Because, you know, you know, maybe he'll definitely do it if, if you kind of give him a little push. And he looked into the camera and he's like, Tom, you know, you're my b- you're gonna you're you're gonna do this. <laughs> I should have given that clip. I didn't think to. Been, I didn't, I didn't think to. Clip. You know, maybe maybe I'll have to pull it out of the habit for you guys. But he did he did that, and I'm like, Wes, well, that's not gonna help. That's not helping us, man. And we do have one more Brady story Ooh. that uh, that we can that we can share. Wes always likes to keep things, you know, having fun and pretty light. And uh, you know, it's a good personality to have. He's always playing pranks on people. Always thinking about how to mess with someone. That, that's one of his favorite things, is he just loves to mess with people. He had this uh, little toy black rat. It's about this long. <laughs> and he tied a fishing line onto its head. And he tied the other side to a set screw in your inside your cabinet. So when you opened up the cabinet to get a glass, this rat would swing out right into you. So I went over his house, and I was hanging out, and uh, right before I left, his, his wife was said, Tommy, can you grab something for me? Like, there's something in the cupboard. I can't reach it. Uh, Anna did this to me. So I reached up, and when I pulled the cupboard open, there was a line attached to a rat, and the rat was a big rubber rat, which when I opened the cabinet, the rat came off, and I jumped back. Oh, my God, I must have jumped back 10 feet and screamed. I mean, it scared the hell out of me. And uh, I think I tried to get someone back with it, but I have never done it as successfully as Wes got me, so... But it was a good prank. He was like in a full sprint, like straight through the door. I mean, usually people sit there and slam the door and be done. Like he was, uh, I've, I've never seen him move so fast. It's a Welker classic. I Match think made in heaven, the two of them. Yes. I think those scenes are so important uh, in these films because, again, 44 minutes, it can't just be football action, right? So not only does humor trump all, and I think they some the funny moments end up being the most memorable, but just to pace out... Uh, the great football stuff, and also to give the dimension uh, of these guys is great. Uh, but I really wanted to talk about one of my favorite football scenes is kind of why I was where I was going there, Cause uh, Well, you know, that one didn't make the film. 
But the first one did. <laughs> I said those types of scenes, the funny scenes. I mean, maybe we should well, talk yeah, about maybe, they, we maybe we should why. talk about why didn't it make the, the friends? Rat scene fellas. didn't make it. Why didn't the rat scene make it? I I mean we always I always thought that the, the the prankster angle of him I thought was interesting because, you know, if you kind of observed Wes Welker outside of the the, the prank that he pulled at the podium with uh, Rex Ryan that we played, you know, he's he's kind of got this stare. He kind of looks really serious as a football player. So, you know, it was cool meeting him to realize he's like literally if he wasn't a football player, I think he'd probably hang out with us. Like I like to tell myself wow. that. He did, he did wow. hang out with us. Yeah, he did. I mean, he's like really <laughs> normal guy. Like, you know, Chip and I worked in hockey before we did this. Similar positions working uh, in the, for the NHL. In, Nick, in, Nick and Chip have been working in pairs for, for, for forever. Decades. Well, decades. Our second football life together. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he kind of reminded me of like hockey guys. You yeah. know what I mean? Like they're all so yeah. normal. When, they're unaware of their celebrity in a way, and and um and they're just down to earth. Well, which raises the, what I think is the other side of his personality, which is the sandpaper quality, which you would have to have to be a five foot nine, thriving NFL slot receiver. Yeah, L- listen to this clip, which I love, of Wes talking to himself before returning oh, punts. This is good stuff. Let's go, man. Go make plays, baby. Go make play, baby. Go make play. Let's go. I think a lot of times you you don't want to think too much, you know, but you want to think the right things. It's like putting your mind into something else. So just having a conversation with yourself. Let's go. Let's get north and south. Let's go. Let's go, baby. Let's go. Let's go, folks. And let's go. Huh? What do you say, three? What do you say? Let's, you know, score a touchdown. Let's go. They can't, you know, they can't tackle you. Big play here. Big play. Let's go. Big play, three. Let's go. Huh? It's just something that I did. You know, just kind of get myself going. You, know, you almost kind of flip the switch and become a little bit of a psycho out there on the field. Let's go, baby. Go make play, three. Go make play, baby. I think a lot of guys do it. And if you don't do it, I think you're, you're kind of missing out. <laughs> It's great to mic guys up. It's hard to convey the speed of the game as seen when you're down in the field, but that section for me uh, is as effective as anything in showing if you're standing on the sideline, again, just what these guys are up against and how this guy's talent just jumped off the field um, to be able to achieve what he did. Yeah, and, and the other, you know, you learn some other things in there too. That when you apply it and you watch the speed of the action that he's in, and you think of the decisions that are made and the option route kind of uh, things he would run with with uh, uh, Brady and Manning, it's amazing to think of you know how quick those decisions are made and the ball's coming before you know it and guys on top of you. Before you know it, it's like well, I'm fascinated by the fact that, like we were talking about earlier, he's our size and he was doing all that in there at the, at the pro- highest level. Programming note, programming note. <laughs> on that point, the option route, later on in the show, we are going to have um, the resident football guru of NFL films on, Greg Cosell, to talk about Welker's unique role in the game and the way he played, the chemistry he had with Brady, the way they were able to read defenses after the snap to make decisions. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. What is an option route? <laughs> what is a slot receiver? Well, Greg will explain. Here's another challenge in making a film about Wes Welker. His career didn't have the happiest ending. And almost, you know, you know, we look for that triumphant climactic moment where we can cue the big music and give people goosebumps. The biggest moment of Wes Welker's career was the worst moment of his career. I feel so good, man. Huh? I feel so good. I I'm open on every <laughs> I know you are. I know you are. I know you are. Block running. Brady brings them out. Second down and 11 for the Patriots. Brady calling signals, takes the snap. Has protection. Goes to the left with it. It is cold drop. That was an incredibly tough catch to make. You know, he it was a it was a, a seam ball, and those things happen. But I, I know this: that's not why we lost the game. 
And so the Giants celebrate, and the Patriots are devastated. West was running down the field, and, uh, uh, you know, West went up to try to make it, as he always does, and we just, you know, couldn't connect. So, you know, I love that guy. He made so many great catches. I, mean, I certainly don't think about any ones that he dropped. I mean, he caught so many important ones. Play I've made a thousand times in practice and everything else, and, you know, comes to the biggest moment of my life, and, you know, don't come up with it, and, you know, it's, it's discouraging. I mean, I can't say I never think about it. Of course I do, you know. Um, you know, you think about it, you're that close, and it was in my hands, and, you know, and I didn't make the play. It was, it was a battle to get over for a long time. So if you didn't recognize it, that was the sort of dissection of the uh, pivotal play. Some would say the game, uh, the, the most pivotal play in Super Bowl Forty Six, the second time the Patriots and Giants faced each other. Um, and the Welker drop there, I think it was, it was in the fourth quarter, late in the game. Um, that, that I believe the, the, essentially the argument is if he makes one of those what-if plays, if he makes that catch, the Patriots, uh, I think, gain a first down. Game's over. Yeah. Game's over if he makes that catch. Uh, what I'm interested in, Nick, is so you, you, you mentioned it. So you, you, you developed this rapport with a guy, and yet in the back of your head, because you're probably not doing it in minute one of interview one, <laughs> no. you know that at some point you're going to have to ask him about, you know, Wes, you had nine awesome uh, athletic achievements. We just talked about them. So the tenth thing on the list is the worst athletic uh, uh, moment of your life. How do you steel yourself mentally for that, for asking that question? And, and how did it unfold uh, with Wes when you finally did have to get to that drop in Super Bowl Forty Six? It's difficult, but I think he knows it's coming because we've kind of talked about it. He knows it's a point in his career that that people look at. And, and I know walking away from it, I, I you have to have it. You have to have him talk about it. Because that's why I'm watching this show. If I'm if I'm a audience member, Friday night, October sixth at nine p.m. Um, <laughs> or so, on demand. On demand, sure. On demand. On demand I mean, as well. Local but cable network. That's what I I always think about that. You know, like I, I think about you know what are what will people who come to watch this want to get out of it outside of the stuff that they know that's out there that they don't have that that intimate discussion with Wes on. I, I hope to try and get that out of him or any other subject who has a, a situation like that. I always look at it as a great opportunity is when you get to tell a story that doesn't have the pat ending. It, it's, a, it's a challenge, but it, it gives you an opportunity to tell a different kind of story. You know, the, the, we have this un, classic underdog story and there's just an ascent through the whole first half of the film. And then all of a sudden Sort of from, you know, even really before this, it, it started, you know, kind of peaked a little early and then it starts coming down. And, you know, this isn't this is the second Super Bowl he loses. He goes on to Denver and loses another one. Yeah. And that was a moment we, we had that in there. And I remember we watched it, Chip, uh, when Chip put that segment together. And he had this great music because, uh, you know, in, in storybook fashion, he goes to the Broncos and in the AFC championship game, who does he beat? The team he left, New England Patriots. So... It's this big moment, and then you know the music feels good, but you know it's not a it's not a he, he didn't have he didn't a have tremendously great, a game, great yeah. game, so there weren't a lot of Welker highlights in there. But it felt good. You're like, yes, you know, Wes won. He won. He's going to the <laughs> triumph for triumph. Wes. And then I think we we we, we had a, the, the music kind of turn a little sour quick, and I was kind of like, oh, you know, like I was kind of riding this emotional high for him, and like, and you you, you had this kind of optimistic. It was good to see Wes happy. Yeah, not so, for long. It, you know, <laughs> wow. Yeah, but if you watch it, you know, it, it, it continues because it, it, it carried his optimism into it. Because as if everyone remembers that game, it was practically over, you know, on snap one. The, the Super Bowl against the Seahawks, you mean? Yes, the Broncos yeah. and the Seahawks. Yeah. Super Bowl, what, 49? Yeah. Um, but, nothing, uh, nothing Wes could have done but Wes, to you know, save he, that game. But, he, you know, like classic Wes, I will, I will overcome Wes. He's like, at halftime, I thought, I really thought we were going to win that game. You know, and he did like because that's, you know, his whole life he's been he's been beating the odds like everyone in this film says. And that that's just how he approached things. You know, when he was being told he he couldn't go to um, he wasn't going to make the NFL when he got one undrafted. They were telling him, hey, man, why don't you try NFL Europe? Because it was still right. in existence. Then. And he was like, I'm not, no, screw, I'm not going to NFL Europe. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to make it. And he did. He, he got a you know, got on the Chargers and uh, got to camp and, and made the team. And yet even his moment of triumph with the Chargers 
had a turn that he wasn't expecting. Uh, let's play that. Uh, play Wes's reaction to his first couple weeks as a San Diego Charger and the the left turn that it took. In 2004, Welker signed with the San Diego Chargers as an undrafted free agent. Being a training camp long shot kept him away from the real football action. So Welker was forced to get creative. I wasn't hardly getting any reps. And I was like, I don't, I don't mind looking like an Like, I'll, I'll be that guy. That's fine. So I go in, hear the call, and then I go back there 20 yards, and I'd run the route you know, looking like an idiot. But I was like, whatever can help me in making this football team, you know, I'm going to do it. Welker's plan paid off. His solo routes turned into training camp reps. And Breeze looking for a touchdown. Which led to preseason touchdowns. Touchdown, Wes Welker. Both receiving and returning. Here's Wes Welker on the punt return on fourth down. Welker's in a foot race for the end zone, and the Chargers have scored. I make the team, and I'm like fired up. I'm like, dude, I made the NFL team, and you know, I'm returning kicks at Houston. I'm thinking, like, yeah, I'm good. I come in there on Wednesday, and they cut me. I was like, but I just, I made the team, you know? Like, I, I mean, I, how can you just cut me when I made the team? And so, I mean, I was, I, I was pretty pissed off at that point. Like, I had no idea, like, they could cut you from week to week. Um, that's when Miami called and said they are going to pay me, like, a thousand extra bucks a month to be on their practice squad. I was like... Sold. A lot of ups and downs in that life. Even when he thought he, he'd made the breakthrough, he was he was yeah. gone out on his ear again. Yeah. When he told we we were a little bit in shock because we kind of went into it thinking, you know, let's get Wes moving around. The plan was we were going to do a lot of walk and talks with him with the high school coach and and just to kind of inject energy by virtue of having some moving scenes with him and stuff. Because I was kind of concerned he might not be a, a great interview. Right. And then you know this was you know the early stuff. I want to talk a little bit more about these two all-time iconic quarterbacks who he shared the field with um, and because there are great moments in the film with, with each one of them. There's a really neat moment where Welker describes the way he and Brady would study off the field. Let's listen to that. He picked up the system really quick. There was an instant connection with Tom, and you could tell that right away. What's up, baby? Let's come back to that smash. I'll run a good route and be wide open. Okay. We're getting one on that, right? There was instant chemistry. You know, he had physical skills, but he was so intelligent on the field. He had great recall. I mean, you could talk about things in practice. They'd come up in the game. He'd do them exactly the, exactly the way you wanted them to. The quarterback and receiver spoke the same language and worked to get better on and off the field. I think some of the really cool things we did uh, was uh, watching... Uh, you know, Montana and Rice, they're one-on-ones in San Francisco. He would watch Montana and study his throwing motion and everything. I'm watching Rice on, you know, how he ran this route, how he ran that route, and we'd watch it together. Okay, we could use this against this coverage in this game or whatever, and, you know, just, just constantly having those conversations over and over and over again. Now, that's what makes a great receiver is you know, when the quarterback communicates something, they take in the information, they're able to apply it. Wes could do that as well as anybody. There's a piece of footage um, that you'd see over that sequence in the film, and it's Jerry Rice running an, a, sort of an out route, and then Wes and Brady uh, running almost the exact same route. How did you find that? I mean, because it's a great idea on paper and the bites are great, but really it comes to life when you see how you guys edited those that footage from, from sometime 30 years ago with, with five years ago. Where did that uh, – who dug that up? Well, the, the cool thing about when you get a, a scene like that, he you know, we're interviewing it. Nick's interviewing him, and he just kind of goes into this Montana Rice thing. We didn't know about that yeah, ahead of time. That was, that was news. Yeah, that was – you know, sometimes, you know, you have an idea about what these guys are going to say, and then all of a sudden they give you a little nugget like that, and you're like, ooh, this is really cool, and this is something that I think we try and find. So, you know, 
being NFL films, we have access to lots of uh, archival-type footage. So then you start going through the Jerry Rice football life and seeing what footage was in there. And sure enough, there's a shot of Jerry Rice running it out. And then, um, you know, you put the scene together and you're like, well, let's see if we can find something that matches that, that, that works. And sure enough, there was something that, that worked like that, uh, you know, that was similar between Brady and, and Welker. And you know, you you know those. That's the best part about this job is is that we have that stuff. That there's so much of it. And and speaking of the archives and 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 coming back in unexpected ways. And and th- like you said, this is what's so great about being here um, at NFL Films because everything we ever shot, you know, is in our vault. And so in, in I think it was the summer of 2013. Chris Barlow and I spent the summer with Peyton Manning for a secret project. We didn't know what it was going to become. It wound up becoming um, an episode of our other documentary series, The Timeline, Peyton Manning's Summer School. And it was a documentary about that summer of Peyton's life, which also happened to be the off-season when Wes Welker arrived in Denver. And one of the things we shot with Peyton was when he went to Duke University to spend a, a, a week with his old coach, David Cutcliffe, and he brought all the Broncos receivers. And in that week is the first time Peyton took the field with Wes as teammates. And we sat there that week and watched those two guys connect. And it was like watching two physicists with, you know, with PhDs (laughs) speak a completely foreign language. What I like about it in the no huddle is that it's this, we just kind of talked through routes, you know, we were able to come to some conclusions on everything, on how we wanted it done. If it's covered two, you skip step. If the safety's coming down. And you want somebody who can communicate on the same level with you. And it's almost like a scissors, Wes, where you're going to hit it because you're so open and I want to get it to you. Stick it and just go right over that inside. Boom. You're ta- I'm taking it. Boom. And then there. That's what I want. That's what I'm talking about. Right there. So Welker played with Brady and Manning and played for Saban and Belichick. I mean, correct around some pretty pretty remarkable mm-hmm. and, some, some and, incredible football minds thought t- Wes Welker is pretty and good. Mike Leach and, and Mike Leach. Well, and Mike and Leach. was Marty the coach of the Chargers when he made the Chargers? He yes. was, and he refers to it as one of the um, worst mistakes he ever made releasing him. Marty does. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a cutting him in hopes of putting him back on the practice squad, and Wes was like, "Screw that," he was pissed. For Schottenheimer, we should say. For $1,000 more a month, Marty lost him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sold. There's Sold. A, there's a gleam, man. <laughs> $1,000 a month gleam. Uh, All right. So, um, guys, congratulations on the film. It's great. Everyone who's thanks. seen it, well, we all think so anyway. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it, fans yeah. do. If you're yeah. listening to this before you've seen the episode or after, uh, hopefully it has added and enhanced uh, your experience with uh, Wes Welker of Football Life. An underrated classic in NFL films history, Cossack's Charge. And appropriate for the great Greg Cosell. Oh, charging in. Didn't I didn't know the title, I believe it or not, of that song. I've I've probably heard it a thousand times, if not more. Charges in for the hardcore football section of the initial NFL films podcast. I feel like I should have a sword and a shield with me now. Paul has Paul Does he? Has, yeah. A sword and a shield. Yeah. And an axe and a helmet. Yeah, and I think yeah. Mm-hmm. So Greg, you watched the Wes Welker I did. football life. Thoughts? Oh, really Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. For me, and I'm sure it's because I've worked here now for 38 seasons, so I'm, I'm familiar with his pro career, but I really enjoyed the, uh, the material on his college career and particularly coming out of high school when apparently no one wanted him. And then Mike Leach, who's a little different cat to begin with, decided that there was a place for him in his air raid offense, and obviously that kind of worked out. Which is an interesting place to start because Wes Welker played for the air raid offense. Yep. He arrives in New England in 2007 when the Patriots become a historically great offense and then goes to Denver 
the year that Peyton delivers a historical oh, yes. trade on. So I guess the the first question is this. Coincidence? That it has nothing to do with Brady and Manning and it's all Wes Welker? The, well, they're they're <laughs> fine they're fine. They're fine. But is Wes Welker a common thread that vaulted those offenses to a different level? When you talk about Welker, I think when he goes to New England, it's hard for me anyway, as someone who studies tape and thinks about this stuff, to separate Wes Welker from the coach and the quarterback because Bill Belichick didn't just bring in Wes Welker because he thought he was a good player. He brought in Wes Welker because he had a defined role for that kind of player. And I think that's so critical in today's NFL for players who don't fit the game from a measurable standpoint. You have to have a defined role and understand how they can be used. I thought that was an interesting comment Leach made about watching the high school tape. Well, the reason he said that Welker didn't catch on anywhere in the eyes of a recruiter was, well, he's too short and too slow. And yet that overlooks what a tremendous player he was. I think that's always an interesting thing when you talk about uh, a coach or a personnel guy evaluating sort of the metrics of uh, the biometrics versus the performance of a player. And I think it's always easy when a guy steps outside sort of those metrics because he doesn't fit the metrics and then he makes it and everybody says, oh, everybody else was an idiot. But you can always go back to sort of the Bill Parcells view of life as well with players that you can't make a living trying to determine if a guy's an exception. And I think Welker to some degree is an exception. And now obviously we look at, at smaller receivers and say, oh, they, they can be like Wes Welker. Some can, some can't, but it also depends on a defined role because Welker – Welker really did one thing, but he did it so, so well. Welker was not a guy you could line up outside. He was not going to win on the perimeter. And I think one of the things about the history of the game is there's a lot of guys who've played in the slot, but they played not only in the slot, but outside. Welker, and I certainly don't have numbers, he played a long time, but wouldn't you guys think that 90% of his snaps, if not more, came in the slot? Well, I I think that's a good place to, like, let's... Step back 30,000 feet. What is a slot receiver? Well, a slot receiver is when you line up with three wide receivers, and you can line up with more, but normally there's three wide receivers. So obviously there have to be two on one side and one on the other side of the formation. So the slot receiver is the inside receiver of the two wide receivers to one side of the field. Is there a body type that that position lends itself to? Not necessarily. There's been many guys over the years who've played in the slot who are not necessarily small, quick guys. You can have bigger guys play in the slot as well. It's really how you structure your offense and what you ask your slot receiver to do. If, as the case in New England, you want your slot receiver to essentially work 10 yards from the line of scrimmage and closer, then you're putting a premium in your philosophy on quickness in a small area. That's a great point, and I want to. Th- there's a bite that um, Wes has from his interview that didn't make the show. Let- let's listen to that and-, and hear what he has to say specifically about the Patriots' offense. The slot position existed. I mean, it it was there. It was just, you know, I I I think a lot of teams and kind of the pro way of doing things was run the ball, run the ball, get it a third and manageable, and now we bring the slot in and we try to get it, you know, find a guy and get us a first down and so we can run the ball again. No, we're going to be like first down, second down, third, whatever down it is, it doesn't matter. We're going to be, you know, in slot formations. We're going to, you know, mix it up and doing a lot of different plays and stuff where it was basically a run play, but you were throwing it. And so they put their base defense in there, and now you got a linebacker on a slot receiver, and it's just it's a matchup nightmare. So now it's one of those deals where we're able to, you know, hit seams, out routes, whatever, you know, basically whatever we wanted to do as far as that went and made defenses change with us and, and how they played us. And, you know, now it's the game has completely changed, you know. And so, you know, it was, it was cool to be a part of. And you're saying that's a goal that Belichick had sort of already been working on and then identified Welker as the perfect profile to fit into that role that he wanted to implement. Is that accurate? 
I would say that's fair. I don't think Bill Belichick just decided that Wes Welker was a nice player. Let's bring him in and then let's see what happens. I don't think Bill works that way. But listening to Wes right there almost brings me back to Mike Martz with The Greatest Show on Turf. And I remember talking to Mike Martz, and he basically said that when he was in Washington with Norv Turner— one of their philosophies, they, they were sitting around as coaches do at night, probably over a scotch or something, and thinking about pass offense. And they thought, why don't we run our third down offense on first down? And they said, that's a good idea, because this is back in maybe the mid-90s when the slot receiver, just as a pure position, wasn't really in vogue yet. So they decided to run their third down offense on first down. And that involved three wide receivers. Then, of course, when he got to the Rams, sometimes it would involve four wide receivers because they had Bruce, they had Holt, they had Hazakim, and they had Ricky Prohl. So sometimes they'd line up with, in a sense, two slot receivers. And they just that's sort of how it, it evolved and grew. And then the position started to become defined. And along with that, concurrent with that, was the the change in the NFL to where what we call 11 personnel, meaning one back, one tight end, and three wide receivers, really became the predominant personnel package that teams used in the NFL. And if you're lining up with three wide receivers, somebody has to be in the slot. When you listen to the, to the bite we just heard, there are elements in there where I listen and say, that I feel like I could be listening to Bill Walsh talking about the West Coast offense, that we're, we're going to use the pass as a run play. What What's different about what the Patriots were doing in 2007 with Welker with what the 49ers were doing with Montana and the West Coast offense in the 80s? Well, I think what the Patriots did, and it clearly evolves, and I think the, the football life with Wes Welker gave you a, sort of a, a glimpse into this with the the relationship that Welker had with Brady and Manning, I'm talking about the football relationship, is the Patriots used a lot of what are called choice or option routes, where Welker had to work off the leverage of the defender, assuming it was not straight man-to-man. But if it was a zone-type concept, you have to work off the leverage of the defender, and the quarterback and receiver don't necessarily know exactly what that leverage might be until after the ball is snapped. And so they have to develop a rapport and a chemistry. And I know chemistry can be an overused word, but that's really what it is because Brady has to read the leverage of the defender the same way that Welker reads the leverage of the defender. And I think that's what sort of has developed, certainly in New England, but I think there's other teams that do the same thing. It's hard for me to say that Brady and Welker were the absolute first. I always am leery of making those kinds of comments, but they certainly, I think, took it to another level. There's a... Great scene in the in the film where between Bill Belichick and Welker, where we see the for the first time an unknown and unheralded punt returner um, in a preseason game for the Patriots um, and Welker's reaction to his emergence. Let's listen to that. So Welker, no go. He's out. Yeah, okay. He, he went through warm ups and he said didn't feel good. So. Okay. In a preseason game against Philly. I was in playing, and Julian returns a punt. The seventh round pick, Julian Edelman, number 11. Keep an eye on him. And, you know, takes it to the house. 30, 35 yard line, 40, 45 yard line. He's going to take it to this ditch. Julian Edelman, the Patriots' seventh round rookie draft pick. You know, of course, Coach Belichick comes up to me. He says, you know, it's like you heard of Wally Pip. Wally, what? <laughs> Wally Pip. Uh uh-uh. uh. You never heard of him? Uh uh-uh. uh. Well, he played first base before Lou Gehrig. Oh, okay. Then Lou Gehrig started, like, whatever it was, 23,000 straight games. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the little man. That might be the fun man. return uh, story. No doubt. Hey, you can have it, man. Oh, there you, you go. Way to, like way to compete. Way to compete. That's his way of doing things. Needling and needling and needling. And I guess he always felt like I always performed my, be- my best when my back was against the wall. And I think that was kind of one of the first times of, like, kind of, really kind of, you know, trying to get at me a little bit. So a a hallway conversation here at NFL Films, certainly over the last couple of years. And of course, Julian Edelman is out this year injured. Who's better? Yeah. Did Edelman surpass Welker? I think they're... Out-Welkered Welker? I think they're different, okay? I, I know that everybody wants to look at them as the same for many reasons, I think Edelman is a little more—let's put it this way. I think Welker is 
really short area explosive. I think Edelman has a little more kind of long speed, not in terms of being a 4.38 guy, but I think Edelman can run routes at a little deeper level more consistently than Welker. I think they're different players. And I think when you watch the Patriots with Edelman, he lines up not solely in the slot. And I think that's because they know he can do a little more. And again, it's not they're not thinking of it as a comparison. They're just looking at the player Edelman and what his strengths are. And I think he just has the ability to line up outside as well. We always, you know, here at NFL Films, look at the historical aspect of things too. We talked about Welker uh, in his career kind of coinciding and catalyzing the definition of this position. If we had to look back in history though, and you've been studying the game a long right. time, who's the first or a couple of first slot receivers that we would point to and say, this is the guy that really represents the beginning of this type of position showing up on a regular basis? Well, like I said, it's hard for me to say the first, but one guy I absolutely remember, and he was always talked about as being an absolute master route runner, was Charlie Joyner. Because you go back to Air Coriel when they had John Jefferson, Wes Chandler, and Charlie Joyner. And, and uh, Charlie Joyner predominantly played in the slot. Not 100%, but predominantly. And he was a little smaller, a bit, little bigger than Welker, but smaller by wide receiver standards, certainly back in that day. And not as short area quick as someone like Wes Welker, but a phenomenal route runner, just a great feel for getting open against man and zone. Charlie Joyner comes to mind. Uh, Keith and I had talked about someone like Art Monk, talking about totally different body types. Okay, Art Monk, 6'3", probably 215 or 220. He lined up in the slot in that era with Joe Gibbs when they had Ricky Sanders, Gary Clark. So, you know, these are guys you look back historically. They were not solely slot receivers, but they lined up in the slot. Well, an interesting connection. Gibbs comes from Don Coriel. Does, did, did, and March is there, as well, I think. Yeah, is there direct lineage there from Coriel with Joyner to, to, to the Art Monk? That's a philosophy thing. Again, he, he's very familiar with Don Coriel's philosophy because, I mean, this is just a very quick aside, but, but Gibbs was there when they drafted Kellen Winslow, and they knew they had this special athlete, and they were lining him up as a conventional tight end in 1979, I think it was, or 80, and he was getting beat up off the line of scrimmage. And it seems so obvious today when we sit here with the benefit of years, but they said to each other, well, this guy's really talented. Why do we want him to get beat up? Why don't we just remove him from the formation? And they split Kellen Winslow out. And that was one of the few times, the first times, that a tight end really was split out wide. So those guys were thinking different things, and Gibbs was part of that. So when he got to Washington, he sort of had an expansive philosophy to begin with. So last question from us. Paul, you got anything else for, no, for Greg? this has been great. The last thing we wanted to talk about this year marks a major change in in what Peter King and many others have ah. called the, the most underrated football show on television, the matchup show on ESPN. Greg Cosell, the longtime producer of that show, has uh, stepped in front of the camera. I'm the there solely for content, Keith. Obviously not and, for looks, and just looks. for content. Uh, yeah. Uh, how, how's it going? Uh, I feel like it's going well. It's always tough for me to judge. I, you know, now I, I watch the show at home on, on both Saturday morning and Sunday morning. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's okay. You know, I'm trying to get to the point where it's okay. Um, and are you happy with the state of the show? This is a totally yeah. new, you know, we, you obviously must miss Jaws and Merrill. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, that's really high standard and, and the legacy is just, you know, really high because of them. Um, I would say the show is a little different. I would say that Lewis Riddick, who's really smart and really good, I would say that he and I are probably in our presentation a little more clinical than Jaws and Merrill. And I think if the show was longer, we'd have to work through some of that a little bit, a little more. Uh, and maybe do a few different things here and there, but it's a 21-minute show, basically. That's that's the running time. So I think it's okay. I'm still trying to sort of figure out organically how to create a little more conversation and, you know, again, not contrive it because I'm not a believer in that, but just to sort of generate a little more looser conversation, and we'll get there. What, what time, what, where can we find? Uh, the two main times, you know, are 8.30 a.m. on ESPN2 on Sunday morning, uh, Saturday morning, excuse me, Saturday morning. These are Eastern times. And then Sunday morning on ESPN at 6.30 a.m. So for most, they're DVR events. But we seem to be getting a really positive response on Twitter. 
You're a social media guy, Greg. Uh, what's the nature of the conversation? Well, I don't know if I'm a social well, media guy. <laughs> people can follow you on. What's your uh, Twitter handle? At, amazingly enough, it's it's you'd never know. It's at Greg Cosell. Very good, intuitive. And and what kind of Twitter conversation do you typically uh, do you get and do you engage in? And uh, well, during the matchup season, we, we we're doing a lot on matchup now with with uh, with Twitter, but. Normally, uh, I'm very fortunate to be able to do some radio shows and, and things like that. So normally, I get a lot of responses to to when I do radio shows, which now, of course, people stations tweet out all the time and uh, generate some some discussion. Cool, Keith. All right, Greg. Great to have you. Um, I know that. Uh, well, I don't know, but I'm guessing that that the boss would have been proud. I I hope today. so. I hope this so. Is- he he always encouraged this and. Uh, Hopefully this works out great. It was fun talking to you guys. All right. Well, hopefully we do it again uh, very soon. Greg Cosell. If there's one detail that that we heard today and that pokes through in the the West Welker football life that, that I think raises your eyebrows more than anything else is is the moment where Wes talks about watching old film of Joe Montana and Jerry Rice with Tom Brady. It, it made us think that maybe the best way to wrap up the first ever NFL Films podcast would would be to play some of an old interview that Steve Sable himself did with Jerry Rice, which was recorded on top of a hill. In 1996, I believe. 1996. Hi, I'm Steve Sable. And, uh, and I'm out of breath, is what I am, because I've just walked to the top of this mountain here in the outskirts of San Francisco. And you might wonder, well, this is sort of a strange place to begin our show this week. But actually, it's not, because my guest host is the king of the hill when it comes to wide receivers, and that's Jerry Rice. And this mountain trail is actually part of his personal workout program. And uh, here he comes right now. Hey, now you're not even out of breath. No, I'm in good, you know. How I'm often in, do you do this? Uh, every day. You do this mountain every day? Well, we run this hill three times, then we're on the track for, for two days, and uh, I think it's really starting to pay off for me. You know, this is something I've been, been doing for a long, long time. You know, Walter Payton used to do something like this, but not a big hill, he had a, like, a, like an incline. And he used, to, he used to have a little voice inside that he told me, he said that this little voice used to say, you gotta do better, you gotta do better. Do you have some sort of little voice inside of you or some motto that you keep repeating to do this for, for this long and to get to the level of excellence that you've achieved? You must have something inside of you saying, repeating over and over again. I think it never quit. You know, if you get into that quitting mode, uh, when you're tired, uh, you're gonna stop. Uh, whenever I challenge this hill, I make it a purpose not to quit. If I'm doing anything, if I'm out there just running sprints, you never want want to really get it inside you, okay, I'm tired, I can quit now. When I'm running this hill by myself, if there's no one else around, uh, I'm not gonna quit. Now, when all the audience thinks of Jerry Rice, you think of, number one, the greatest receiver who ever played the game. You think, two, work ethic. Now, you hear all these things written about you. What do you think is your most overrated virtue, the thing that you hear about you or you hear written about you that you think and you say, you know, I don't think that's true. Well, uh, you know, coming out of college, I was knocked because of my speed. Uh, you know, uh, when I read little quotes saying, well, Jerry Rice, he's not as fast. I think it really I'm fast as fast as I, I want to be. Uh, it, you know, so many guys uh, they are faster, but when I put that uniform on, Your football you know, speed. I feel like I convert into Superman or something like that. I believe I can't be caught. Uh, and if I get a step on you, I, I feel like I can't go to distance. What I think is fascinating about this interview is that even though Jerry Rice is, is a very different player than Wes Welker, both of them were underdogs in their own way. And, and Jerry Rice carried a very similar chip on his shoulder to Wes. And you hear that come out in this interview. You can follow NFL Films on all of your favorite social media channels. At NFL Films on Twitter. You can like us on Facebook, Instagram, an NFL Films 
YouTube channel, constantly being populated with our latest works. Where can we watch the Welker film, uh, Keith? NFL Network. The premiere is Friday night, October 6th, and it'll be on demand on your local network, wherever you might live. Thanks to our engineer, Terry, our producer, Bennett, our assistant, Rich, who helped make this first broadcast. See that, Paul, you're Magic. talking over the best part. The song just opened up. We're talking over the crescendo. There'll be more melody. There it is. There it is. That's the good stuff right there. Steve Sable's birthday, October 2nd. Hopefully the boss would have liked this one. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>